Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Every month I make a podcast with the team at Pictay called Founding Conversation. It's a discussion programme bringing together How To Academy guests with members of Pictay to explore the big themes of our time. I'd like to share this month's episode, a one-on-one conversation between the writer and recent How To Academy guest Daniel Pink and Pictay's head of communications, Hubertus Culps. Enjoy. You can subscribe to Founding Conversation on Apple and Spotify. Paris, 1981. A young American sits on a train traveling northward through France when a young woman boards and takes a seat beside him. Bruce is 22 years old and one day away from the end of a year-long trip to Europe. The woman is a little younger, a Belgian working in Paris now returning home for a short break. Conversation between the pair flows easily. They laugh and start playing games together. Soon, they're holding hands. Hours pass. They begin to feel they've known each other their entire lives. Would it be wrong to say they're falling in love? Midnight approaches and the train arrives in Belgium. The young woman gets ready to depart, and Bruce frantically scribbles his home address in America and hands it to her. They kiss, but when the train doors open, she disembarks, disappearing into the night and out of Bruce's life forever. Why didn't you get off with your girlfriend? His fellow passengers ask. She isn't my girlfriend, he answers. In fact, I only just met her. I don't even know her name. The next day, he boarded a plane back to the United States. Bruce, who's now in his 60s, spent the rest of his life wishing he'd stepped off that train. No regrets, the mantra adorns tattoos, t-shirts, and posters. Celebrities say they live by it. But should they? Bruce still regrets not showing more boldness in that irresistibly romantic moment on the train. And how many more Bruces are in the world, wishing they had taken a risk on a more exciting future rather than playing it safe. I'm Rosario Lebrija Razbetayev, your host for Founding Conversation, a podcast sharing ideas and insights for understanding and improving the modern world. Daniel Pink, the New York Times bestselling author of When and Drive, and one of the world's leading thinkers on business creativity and human behavior, says it's time to forget everything we think we know about regret. He believes that regret is our most misunderstood emotion and can in fact be the pathway to our best life. It's a subject he investigates in depth in his new book, The Power of Regret. He's joined by Hubertus Kulps, Bigdet's global head of communications and branding, to share his ideas. You grew up in the Midwest, Columbus, yes. Ohio, I think to be exact. Tell me a bit about your childhood. I, I think it was a pretty unexceptional childhood. I grew up in a upper middle class place. You know, my parents were both college graduates. I went to a public school, you know, just a few blocks from my house. 
for me, the formative things in my childhood were not so much school, but probably uh, the public library and team sports. Those are the things that probably mattered the most to me. What sports did you play? Uh, well, when I was a little kid, I played I played everything. I played uh, flag football. I didn't I didn't play yeah. tackle football when I got older, but but flag football. I played basketball. I played baseball. But even more than that, just I spent a huge amount of time just like playing basketball or football or tennis or whatever, just with my brother and kids in the neighborhood. No, so I can definitely relate. From that time back then, any regrets? From then, uh, I actually wish that I had, well, a lot. I mean, I, I regret that I didn't learn a musical instrument. I know nothing about music. I'm a complete ignoramus about music. I have no experience in music. And, and I actually was fortunate enough that where I grew up, like there was an opportunity to do that, but I didn't take it. It's not all that it's cooked up to be. I did piano for six years. I, I can't play a piece or a note for you today. So after high school, uh, you went to Northwestern, studied linguistics. You also ran for student government, I read, and you hosted a talk show on the uh, Northwestern's radio station. Can you tell me what was the talk show about and what did you learn from the student government experience? Uh, well, I mean, I didn't learn a lot from the student government experience because I ran for president of the student government and lost soundly. So what I learned was essentially how not to win an election. So, Don't run for government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The talk show was, uh, this kind of, I thought it was kind of interesting. It was called Of Special Interest. And I would interview, it was a weekly show where I would interview, you know, a whole variety of, uh, of guests who, uh, many of whom happened to be coming onto campus for other things. So when the civil rights leader Julian Bond came onto campus, I was able to interview him. There was a time... Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman, who were part of the uh, Chicago 7 in the late 1960s, uh, they, in the 80s, when I was in college, they had a little road show uh, where Abby Hoffman remained a radical and Jerry Rubin became an investment banker. And so I interviewed them. So after Northwestern, you went to Yale. You edited the Yale Law and Policy Review. Didn't sound very exciting, but at least not exciting as your books. And uh, then you went into politics, worked on campaigns, and ended up writing speeches for Al Gore. How did that happen? How did you go from you know, working on campaigns and, and doing talking points and maybe some speeches to writing for the vice president? Well, I mean, it's actually not that much of a step. I mean, the thing about campaigns especially is that they're usually very fast moving and understaffed. And that can be an advantage if you're young and willing to work a lot. And so I think inevitably what happens is, is that in those kinds of set, I think it's true for startups too. And, you know, in a number of, I think it's, I don't think it's unique to campaigns. I think it's true in a number of different things that are moving fast, that are not super hierarchical, that don't quite have the sort of the, the, the very firm infrastructure of, of talent. What happens is that mm -hmm. stuff needs to get done and the people in charge look around and say, hey, can anybody write a speech? And then you just raise your hand. I, I can do that. And then if you do it all right, they ask you again. And if you do it three times in a row, suddenly that's your job. And I get that. But somehow you must have been passed along as this guy's actually really good and you should be writing for Al Gore. I mean, what happens is that it's almost like, um, you know, NBA head coaches in a way, in that there's there's a finite number of people who have the specialized knowledge to be an NBA coach. And so when a job opens, it's like there are only like six people who are even in consideration for mm -hmm. it. So that, that, that's what it becomes. I think if there's a lesson in that, and I don't know if there is, if there's a lesson in it, the lesson is, and I tell my kids this too, is um, if in a cer certain situation, especially when you're young and someone says, can you do that? The answer 
nine times out of 10 should be yes, even if you can. I think that's the, I, from, from early days of my career, it was who wants to do that? You know, raise your finger. And I think then uh, you get a chance. Absolutely. Then you figure it out. You do the best you can. And then you learn and you try it again. I, I think that if, if anybody waits to be perfectly prepared to do something short of like brain surgery, okay, I'm talking about like things that don't involve the life and death of another human being, you got to just say, yeah, I can do that. I'll give it a try. Absolutely. In any case, 1997, 25 years ago, you stopped working at the White House. You started working for yourself at the Pink House, your words, from your, uh, your, from your Fast Company article, Free Agent Nation. Did that not take an incredible amount of guts? I mean, you had a young family at that time. Uh, no, it did not take that much. Uh, don't, don't overstate that. I, um, you know, um, my wife did not leave her job. Okay. Uh, she did not give up her health insurance because, you know, the American system is a messed up system when it comes to health care, health insurance. And also, it, we, we decided to try it for a few years and see if it worked. And if it didn't work, I could go back and get a real job. So it was, it's hard for me to think of it as an act of, uh, of courage. deep courage. Okay. Yeah. But so, there, and was there anything else on the table other than journalism and writing? I mean, you could have easily probably gone to any number of, of public affairs firms in D.C., Oh my God, that's that was what I was worried about. Here's what happened. I mean, just give you a little bit of context. So from the time that I was in college, I was always quote unquote writing on the side. All right. So I never considered myself like, oh, I'm gonna be a writer when I grow up. But I was always doing it on the side. So even when I was in law school, I was writing articles and essays and op-eds and things like that. Even when I was working in some of these political jobs on the side, I would write, you know, magazine articles or anything like that. And it finally occurred to me that what was happening on the that that, 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 that what I was doing on the side was telling me something. It was a signal. It was giving me clues about what it was that I did, who I was. And, you know, it took me a while to, to, you know, really hear those signals and respond to it. But I said, well, maybe like what you really want to do is be a writer, that you want to talk about your own stuff rather than channel other people's stuff. And so that's what I decided to do. And then in terms of the topics that I choose, uh, I mean, I'm tell- the main driver is my own curiosity. Mm-hmm. It's like, because right, especially writing a book, writing a book is a gigantic pain. It's really, really hard. And so if I'm not deeply, 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 deeply interested in a topic, it's going to be a miserable experience mm-hmm. and probably a mediocre book. So again, that's basically the, you know, I, I think about what I'm curious about and what I'm willing to work hard on. And I will do, a, you know, a quick kind of commercial check to make sure that it's something that is that is sellable. And if there's something that I'm thinking of, that you know, if I had, um, you know, oh, my God, I'm deeply interested in uh, fruit fly reproduction, that might be hard to sell commercially. But, you know, most of the stuff that I have, it's like I feel like if I'm interested in it, then other people be interested mm-hmm. in it because I'm not that special. In 1960, Edith Piaf's defiant cry consolidated her fame as France's most celebrated singer. To this day, Ne Genecratrienne remains the best-known French-language song in the world. Piaf led a troubled, turbulent life. As a teenager, she abandoned a child who died in infancy. Her romantic relationships were frequently disastrous. Addictions to alcohol and to morphine ravaged her body. She died just three years after her most famous song was released aged just 47. Was it really true that she regretted nothing? On her deathbed, her final words were, everything you do in this life you have to pay for. 
Who knows how her life might have gone if she'd confronted her regrets and learned from them when she had the chance, rather than suppressing them. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So how did you land on regret? Is that the topic where you said, gosh, that's interesting? Uh, yeah, and because I was, you know, all research is me-search to some extent. And so I was at a point in my life where I had regrets. And a reason that I had regrets is that I had room to look backward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, when I first went out on my own all those years ago, I would not have written about regret. It's not something mm-hmm. that I would have really thought about because I didn't have enough mileage on me. Right. But 20 plus years later, I have a lot more mileage on me and therefore a lot more room to look back. And when we look back, I, like everybody, every other human being, looks back and says, oh, if only I had done this, if only I had done that. And is there one particular trigger regret for you? No, I don't think there's a a single one. I think it's a constellation of things. If there's one that that sticks with me the most, it it wasn't a trigger, but it is one that continues to bug me are regrets about, about kindness uh, you know, where I, I like being in situations where I didn't act as with enough kindness or enough inclusivity mm-hmm. earlier in my life. And it bugs me even to this day. I, I still am bothered by even, you know, small acts earlier in my life of dishonesty. Like mm-hmm. that still bugs me. So what was really what was really the impetus was looking back, realizing I had regrets and talking to people about it and finding people were captivated by this topic, that people right. wanted to talk, engaged by this topic. People wanted to talk about it, which goes against what a lot of us believe about this emotion, right. that people recoil from it, that they don't want to engage about it, that they want to avoid it at all costs. What I found when I began reckoning with some of my own regrets and talking to people about it is that it was the exact opposite, yeah. that people actually deeply wanted to talk about it. So let me let me ask you one particular question that's, that's going to take a little bit longer to tee up. But essentially, you argue that society is generally anti-regret in the sense that you just described. They don't really necessarily want to pull them out um, and, and, and have them front and center. And you explain that with this universal phrase, no regrets, right, which is right. in hundreds of songs and which people tattoo right. on their arms. And so I want to ask if you're open to another interpretation of what people might mean when they say no regrets. I mean, to a degree, don't you think that for many, it's more of a forward-looking statement, kind of an encouragement to be bold? I mean, you have this great example in the book about Bruce, the American guy who's traveling through Europe on, on Eurorail. He meets this Belgian girl on the train. They start talking, sparks fly, and then she has to get off, and he doesn't. He stays on the train, and he regrets that. He regrets that he may have lost the love of his life. And so I was wondering that if Bruce had you know, no regrets tattooed on his arm in that moment, he probably would have been the type of guy who jumps off. I just wanted your your perspective on that. Maybe, maybe. I mean, there are different ways of thinking about like no regrets. What I'm really looking at 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 at, at retrospective regrets. I think it's uh, you know, in people saying no, I look, uh, you know, I never look backward. I'm always positive. 
Uh, everything happens for a reason, and so I never look backward. I think there's something to be said for trying to avoid prospective regrets, for anticipating regrets, mm. you know, and trying to avoid them in the future. I think that's I think that's actually a healthy thing if we do it right. And one of the things that happens is, is that we, is that we sometimes if we anticipate too many regrets, we get um, paralyzed in our decision making. We try to maximize every choice, and that's not a recipe for healthy living. But I think if we try to avoid certain regrets, I think that's very, very healthy. Yeah, no, I think that's that's exactly what, the way I was thinking about it, is that for some probably that that no regrets is an attitude for looking forward and saying I, I have to be bold. Um, yeah, and as opposed to just saying you know. Although, although I think a lot of people, the story behind the tattoo that they got was actually something bad happened to them in the past, and they said, "I don't have any regrets about that," or it's not going to happen to me again. Going Could forward, be. yeah. Um, in any case, talk to us a little bit more in detail about really about the research project because I mean, you took two years, you carried out the largest quantitative research about regret I think that was ever conducted. Tell us a little bit about the project and also how it differed, how its findings may have differed from previous research uh, on the subject. So I did a couple of things. One, I I did a a large public opinion survey of the U.S. population looking at American attitudes about regret. And and in particular, I was interested in seeing if there were demographic differences in, in people's experience of regret. And then the second thing that I did, which proved to be more revealing, was something called the World Regret Survey, where we've collected regrets from, at this point, we're, I think we're over 21,000 right now, 21,000 regrets from people in 109 countries. And there, I saw something intriguing going on. And what it was, was that typically the way that people had measured, uh, had assessed what people regret, and something that I had done when I looked at, in my own stuff, what people regret, is thinking about it in terms of the domains of life, career regret, education regret, uh, romance regret. And what I found is that something else was going on beneath the surface, that the, the, the way to understand what people regretted was not to look at the, those domains of life, but to look at something deeper going on underneath that I think, or at least argue, reveals some fundamental human needs. And so and I got at that by reading through these all of these regrets, not all of them, I've read through the first 15,000, but mm-hmm. reading through these these regrets, hearing people's voices and, and thinking hard about the language that they were using and realizing that the language they were using to talk about careers was often the same that they used to talk about romance, that the language they used to talk about education was often the same uh, language they used to talk about health. And so to me, it's a I mean, it's an interesting question about how do you know stuff? How do you figure stuff out? And to me, it's important to analyze these things from multiple Mm-hmm. Uh, vantage points. So I went and looked at, you know, 50 or 60 years of, of science on this on this emotion. Then I also did this pretty rigorous quantitative poll, but I also did this very large scale qualitative. And, and I think if any, if I had relied on any one of these, I would not have gotten the complete picture. But relying on all three of them, I think, gave me, you know, a three dimensional view of this emotion. And, and a chance, and we talked about this earlier, to structure it in a different, in a new way that, 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 you know, perhaps makes a little bit more sense. Um, Before we get to that, because I want to, I want you to explain to us kind of the structure that you found. Can you talk me through what you found that people regretted most? 
Is there one particular subject that you found was came up? Well, there were there were four core regrets. And I don't know if they when, when you say most, I mean, there were there were four core regrets that people seem to have. And the largest category of those was something called uh, what I call connection regrets, which were regrets about relationships and not only romantic relationships, but the full spectrum of relationships in our lives. Uh, so so relationships with kids, relationships with parents, relationships with siblings, relationships with, you know, other relatives, relationships with colleagues, with ex-colleagues, with friends. Um, and so that was the largest that was the largest category. And they typically arose when people would you know, have a relationship of some kind that was intact or should have been intact, and then it comes apart. And the way these relationships come apart is usually not very dramatic. Uh, they, they drift apart. And what happens is somebody wants to reach out. They say, oh, it's going to be uncomfortable to reach out. So they don't. They say the other side, it doesn't matter to them if I reach out. They're not going to appreciate it. And so they don't. people don't act, and the drift widens, and sometimes it's too late. And um, did you see any difference there across demographic groups? Well, and the qualitative uh, research, because it wasn't a random sample, I can't make, you know, safe, accurate claims about demographic differences. What I did see as a general impression across the, these now 21,000 regrets is a remarkable lack of variation based on these things, uh, based on nationality, based on the, these kinds of things. And in the quantitative survey, where I can make accurate claims about these differences because I had a very large sample and the sample was rep- the sample represented what the United States looks like and I could and I can do the cross tabs and find you know do men have different regrets than women do uh, and and the and the demographic differences were not vast there mm-hmm. were far fewer than I expected the big one and I think it's very significant had to do with age and what it showed is that when we're young, we have roughly equal numbers of regrets of action and inaction, regrets about what we did and regrets about what we didn't do. But as we age, the inaction regrets take over. The inaction regrets outnumber action regrets sometimes by about two to one. As in, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I should have done right. this. Right. Done that. Right. Of my life. Yeah. A um, regret about what they didn't do. Yeah. I didn't ask that person out on a date. I didn't reach out to my estranged brother. Got it. So con- connection regret you said was kind of the most prevalent. Walk us through the other three. Uh, So we also have foundation regrets, which are if only I'd done the work. These are regrets about people who making bad decisions early in life that accumulate to nasty consequences later in life. So, uh, you know, a classic example of that would be I uh, I spent too much and saved too little. A lot of regrets like that. But also not so much in the U.S., but outside of the U.S., lots of regrets about smoking. A lot of regrets about not taking care of one's health, not sleeping enough, not exercising. A uh, surprising number of regrets about people who said, I wish I had worked harder in school and university, who realized that not taking their education seriously, the conse- a consequence of that was that their current platform is a little bit wobbly. So that those are foundation regrets. Boldness regrets are, if only I'd taken the chance. These are regrets about people who regret not speaking up, not asking somebody out on a date, not being entrepreneurial in their careers, not starting a business, um, not taking the trip, um, those kinds of things. And then the final one, are, or not the, the fourth one is moral regrets, which are if only I'd done the right thing. And these are regrets that people have about you know, being at a juncture, having a chance to you know, do the right thing or do the wrong thing, and then doing the wrong thing or taking the low road and then regretting it. 
it's interesting, but I think you found out that some people have, you know, higher moral thresholds than others, or there's different, there's different categories of moral thresholds. Can you, can you walk? Yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not exactly, it's a great point. It's not higher or lower. It's just, it's just, it's just different. And this is the work of a lot of research in moral psychology, a lot of the work done by John Haidt, looking at um, that, that, you know, when we say boldness, there's a consensus. We generally agree it's bolder to ask somebody out on a date than not to do that. It's bolder to start a business than not to do that. When it comes to morality, it's a little more complicated. We have a consensus. When I say we, I mean humanity. We have a consensus on some things. So, for instance, we have a consensus that, that lying is, is generally a bad idea. We have a consensus that harming another person, hurting another person by bullying them, for instance, which is a big regret, is immoral. But there are other kinds of things that are murkier. So, for instance, uh, here in the States, I had several people who regretted not serving in the U.S. military, not because they missed the adventure, but because they felt they breached some kind of patriotic duty they mm-hmm. had to serving. Now, there, there are some people in the United States who would say, what are you talking about? That's not a moral regret. Right. And to them, I would say, you don't get to decide that. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that's this one person's uh, moral moral code. Now, some of this shapes up in traditional kind of American left, more like kind of left and right. And what, what Heights research shows is that the left has sort of fewer moral taste buds and the right has a more expansive set of moral taste buds that include things like duty, sacredness, purity, those kinds of things. So, I mean, to mention one that's, that's in the news here in the States right now is abortion. Uh, I had several people in the, you know, in the World Regret Survey who regretted having an abortion. Hmm. And even somebody like me who believes in abortion rights, who believes that women should have sovereignty over their body, I can't say I don't I don't say to that person, no, that's not a moral regret. No, Mm -hmm. that's your moral code. In 15th century Japan, the shogun Ashikaga Yoshimasa accidentally dropped and smashed a tea bowl. He sent the pieces back to China to be repaired, but when the bowl came back with ugly metal staples holding it together, he decided to ask local artisans to see if they could do a better job. They glued the fragments together with a liqueur mixed with gold, not concealing, but drawing attention to the lines of breakage. It was the beginning of Kintsugi, a new art form that embodied the very philosophy discussed in this episode, one of accepting and celebrating imperfection. Centuries later, Leonard Cohen summed the idea beautifully in his song, Anthem. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. So, if we regret something, and, you know, as, as you said earlier, all of us do, you developed in your book kind of a methodology for how we can use regret in a positive way without either wallowing in it or completely ignoring it. Can you explain that? Sure. I mean, I think that's the key, you know, that we need to have a different approach toward regret and toward negative emotions in general. I think a lot of times we're, we're so over, especially here in the States, we're over-indexed on positivity. Uh, we think that we need to be positive all the time that we, and, and that we should never look back. And therefore, when we feel that spear of regret, which is one of the most common emotions that human beings have, arguably the most common negative emotion that human beings have, one instinct is to bat it away, to say, nope, no regrets, nope, I don't look backward, I'm always positive. That's a bad idea. That that leads to delusion. Now, what's often even worse 
is actually being captured by those regrets, by being brought down by those regrets, by wallowing in those regrets, by ruminating in those regrets. And that's dangerous too. So what we want to do is is somewhere is is a third way, which is to confront our regrets, to actually to think about our regrets. So, you know, the regrets are not for ignoring and they're not for wallowing, they're for thinking about. They are signals, they are data, they are information, they are clues. They tell us things. They give us some clarity about what we value and they instruct us how to do better. And if we deal with them systematically, again, neither ignoring them nor wallowing in them, they can be a force for progress. And uh, so very concretely, it's consciously be aware of the fact that it's there and then say, think, how am I going to change and be different tomorrow? Sure. I mean, I think part of it is the steps, I think, are, are not ignoring the regret and not wallowing in it, but saying, OK, here's a signal. What's it telling me? First of all, this regret makes me feel bad. And so the first step is to reframe how you think about the regret and yourself. So, you, you know, a lot of times when we talk to ourselves, we are brutal. Our self-talk is cruel. It's vicious. And so what, instead, what we should be doing is treating ourselves with kindness rather than contempt in the face of mistakes. We should recognize that our mistakes, our screw-ups are part of the human condition. Everybody has them. You're not that special. And that also any mistake, any screw-up, any setback, any regret is a moment in our lives, not the full measure of our lives. And when we do that, basically treat ourselves ultimately with some self-compassion, with kindness rather than contempt, treat ourselves not better than anybody else, but not worse than anybody else. Treat our, you know, we, 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 you know we, sometimes we, we think that it's effective to treat ourselves with more cruelty than we would ever treat somebody else. And it's not. Now, mm-hmm. we, we shouldn't treat ourselves in a more exalted way than we treat anybody else, mm-hmm. but we should treat ourselves just as well. And when we do that, it clears the way to disclose the regret, to make sense of it, and then to be able to draw lessons from it. So in that context, can you tell the, the Alfred Nobel story? I think it's a beautiful story from the book. The, Alfred Nobel is an interesting story. It, it might even be true. And what happened is, is that uh, so Alfred Nobel one morning woke up and he picked up the morning's newspaper and he sees his obituary in there uh, because a reporter had mistaken uh, Alfred for his brother uh, who had, who actually had died. And what freaked out Alfred was that the headline said the, uh, of the obit was that the merchant of death is dead. And it described not this life of accomplishment, but a life of where he, you know, this guy who actually made the world worse because Nobel had invented dynamite. He invented all kinds of other kinds of explosives that people had used to harm each other. And so the the account of his life that he saw before him was an account of somebody who made the world worse. And so that was troubling. And he wanted to avoid those regrets later in life when he actually did die. And so that was the impetus for his starting the Nobel Prizes, which is about advancing humanity rather than obliterating it. Perfect. Dan, thanks a lot. I really, really appreciate it. Okay, yeah, pleasure. Thanks. Good talking with you. This episode of Found in Conversation starred Daniel Pink and was presented by Hubertus Kulps. Dan's new book, The Power of Regret, is out now in all good bookstores. This podcast is a collaboration between BICTE, one of Europe's leading independent wealth and asset managers, and the How-To Academy, London's premier public forum for sharing big thinking. The executive producers are me, Rosario Lebrija Razvetayev, and Vasily Christodoulou. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.